Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach, I've got in the beach chat Chris Anahoro and his story is amazing. He had a kidney problem diagnosed when he was 18 years old and still went on as a promising football player and got to the NRL and played the top grade. He was a fitness fanatic, he now runs a gym, but his story of how he just recently had a kidney transplant and the lead up to that point is quite incredible. So now let's sit back and have a listen to my chat with Chris. Okay, this week in the Beach Shack, we've got Chris Anahoro and he has got a really good story, but he's uh, also grown up around the eastern suburbs and played professional football. Welcome, Chris. How are you, mate? Good, Hoppo. How are you, mate? Mate, uh, let's tell us about growing up a bit. You said you uh, you grew up in the eastern suburbs. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so my dad's Nigerian and mum's Australian. So I was born in Australia, moved to Nigeria for a few years with my mum and my uh, older sister and my dad and ended up moving back here. And I think I started primary school at Clovelly Public in, in year one. So you mentioned Nigeria. What was that like? Is, can you remember much? You're pretty young. Oh yeah, I was pretty young. I've got like some traumatic memories. I remember a snake being in our house and my sister telling me that was going to eat all my Lego and being devastated. A couple of other things, like a couple of uh, injuries I had, like riding a bike and cutting my leg open, being in hospital. But um, yeah, just things like that. Um, some friends that I've actually um, reconnected with on, on on Instagram and Facebook, which is pretty cool. But yeah, not not too much, not not huge memories. Uh, mate, yeah, and you mentioned Cleverly. My kids went to Cleverly Public School, so... Yeah, great little school then. Oh, it was great. Yeah, still still got a lot of mates that I went to primary school with, like Whippet and Mouse and Troy Stewart. So, yeah, it was a good it was a good primary school. So, mate, from there, what did you uh, sports did you play? Obviously, you you did a bit of surfing and 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 played footy. Yeah, so in primary school, actually, my dad competed up for Nigeria in a few in hockey and hurdles and a few other sports. Um, so I was quite sporty as a kid, really fast runner. So I did a lot of um state running, like sprint 100 metres, high jump, stuff like that. But And tennis, I was a third in the state in tennis in primary school, but I actually wasn't allowed to footy. My dad didn't like violence, so I wasn't allowed to play footy until I was probably about 13, 14 years old. Whippet's dad, I don't know if many people know, Pete Clark, but um, he had the gift of the gab and he taught my mum into letting me play. So <laughs> it all started then. And who'd you, who'd you play your, your junior rugby league with? I started with Union. I played for the Clovelly Eagles. And then my junior league, I played for a club called Southeastern, which is based in Malabar. Um, from Southeastern, a lot of like, you know, I hung out and surfed at Maroubra and a lot of the boys kind of went over to the Wombats. So from Southeastern, we couldn't get a team in the under 15s or 16s. So we all went over to the Wombats and I played the rest of uh, my kind of junior league there. Obviously, you went on and, and played 
first grade football. But we'll, we'll touch on that in a minute because at the age of 18, you were diagnosed with a, a disorder. And yeah, how, how what tell us a bit about that? So I was out on my 18th birthday. So I was 17, just turning 18. Had a night out with a lot of the boys from you know, from home, from Maroubra, the beach, and then a lot of the boys from footy. Big night out, came home and like, looked down on my legs and I just had like swelling. Like all the, it was like all the fluid that I've ever, ever drank was like stuck in the bottom of my legs. So I was a bit concerned, went to, um, I, I just had a surgery on my ankle, had a benign tumor removed from my ankle. So I wasn't actually playing and I was contracted with the Bulldogs at the time. Went to, I was meant to be back in about three or four weeks. Um, went to a, a game, a local game, saw a doctor, a club doctor. Uh, he referred me to a, a, I did some blood tests and referred me to a kidney specialist uh, whose name was Mark Penny, who I still see, you know, now 23 years later. And then, yeah, they did some tests, a biopsy, and I was diagnosed with what they called FSGS, which is like a, called focal segmental glomerulonephritis, which basically meant that my immune system was attacking my kidneys. At that point, they told me I had six months before I'd need a transplant. I was in hospital, obviously, at 18. It was devastating because all I wanted to do was be a professional footy player. Yeah, so, you know, it was uh, pretty uh, stressful and, you know, kind of a negative time, but always just try to keep in mind that, you know, that just because someone says something that's not always the case, like, you know, I just kind of carried on living my life and assuming that I would be able to play one day. So, yeah. yeah. And how was that? Um, obviously, you would have had to go through a lot of hospital visits and and tell us about the the stress of that. And as you're saying, being 18 years old. Look, I, I, I pretty much had just about every complication under the sun. So one of the things they did straight away was they had me with um, a drug called prednisone and some other autoimmune suppressant drugs. Prednisone, I think when I because I was training and healthy. I was like a, about 100 kilos at 18 years old. And the prednisone, I was on a high dose of that, took me to 137 kilos. It just basically, I had stretch marks all over, still do have stretch marks all over me, ripped my body apart. But then from there, I had things like uh, shingles. I had pneumonia. I had like an abscess on my neck that I needed surgery on. All these kind of little complications just due to the um, immunosuppressants that, yeah, was horrible but also you know I had a lot of support and I was you know my glass is always three quarters full most of the time so I just try to look at the positives and everything for me was always short term and I was always kind of confident that I'd you know, no matter what happened I'd, I'd be able to get back to doing what I love doing. So mate then from there you obviously were keeping yourself fit but you would have put the extra weight on so must have been hard then to try and come back and play football. So yeah look the, the weight at 18 as well was a really tough thing for me. I think it was probably the, the thing I struggled with the most, you know, being fit, healthy and, and strong, going to kind of not that and not being, you know, healthy and looking healthy was really hard. And I, I you know, I got picked on a fair bit. It's just part of growing up as an 18 year old. You know, I understand that now. It was really hard to cope with back then. But yeah, like, it was, it was a stressful time. In saying that, I had like a lot of support from my mates, my family, my mum, even a lot of other boys from footy. So, you know, Rennie, Sonny Bill, Nate Miles, like I kind of played at the Bulldogs with all those boys. And, you know, the Bulldogs club was super supportive as well. I, you know, they contracted me. They were paying for my uni. Um, even though I didn't play a game there, they fulfilled my contract for the two, for two or three years, managed to, to, to do university and things like that as well. So, yeah, I was very lucky in that sense. 
And you were saying about the you had six months to get a, a transplant. Yeah. What happened there? Because you obviously didn't get it at that stage. Yeah. So as I, was talked, I mentioned before, the, um, the immunosuppressants, what the aim of that is to do is kind of just hammer your immune system because my immune system was attacking the kidney. And then I went into remission. So it took about probably four years from 18 to 22 where I wasn't allowed to play sport, where I was on different kind of drugs for my blood pressure. I think at one point I was on 18 tablets in the morning and 17 at night. I went into remission probably two years during that period or three years later. Um, and then what they start to do is wean you off all those drugs. So with the um, prednisone, it made me gain that weight. I was still allowed to exercise. I was training. I just wasn't like not allowed to kind of train as hard as I was. So yeah, basically what happened is I um, they reduced the, the, the drugs. The prednisone was the main one. Um, and as that came off, the weight came off as well. Probably only really had about 10, 10 kilos to lose before I could kind of be back at, at playing weight. Um, and I did that through uh, just playing footy, training. Um, I've always loved the gym. So, yeah, just doing it through that. So were you on dialysis at all? Yeah. So I didn't – I actually started dialysis about two and a half years ago. So I was in remission for – from 18 to probably 30, 38. I've just turned 40. So I, I um, went away on a, a trip to the Goldie, one of my best mates, he lives up on the sunny coast and we met him on the Gold Coast. And what, what happens is they kind of take your bloods. I did, did blood tests every, every, three, every quarter and the doctors would take the bloods and look, my kidney function was slowly dropping, like declining. And they would just say, look, you know, you're pretty sick, but you're not sick enough yet to start dialysis. I was lucky enough to... Um, have my sister offer to donate her kidney and she was a, a perfect match. So tissue and, and blood, blood type match, which is what you need for the transplant. So I only knew, I knew initially that my time on dialysis would only be short, probably three months before they would do the transplant. So that was all kind of, um, yeah, all kind of already planned. So dialysis was only ever meant to be a, a short term thing, which ended up being a longer thing, but probably we'll get into that a bit later. Yeah. It, uh, it was only a sh- only a short term thing. So initially three months, so I had a, a permacath that they kind of stick into your chest, which means you can't swim, you can't get wet because of really high high risk of um of infection, and the line goes straight into your heart. So they just you've just got to be super careful. So back then to the football after the Bulldogs, did you go to South Sydney from there? And and as you said, you're in remission, so you could train and and play back to how you were prior to being eighteen. Well, in, in hindsight, no, but I, I believe that I could. So I guess, you know, perception's reality, right? Like in my head, I didn't have anything wrong with me and I was just pushing on and I kind of didn't talk about the disease much or let many people know about it because I was always scared that clubs wouldn't sign me. So I just kind of cracked on. It's funny enough, I didn't go straight back to, to South. I um, went and played local A-grade and I went back to um, Coogee Wombats. And I played local A grade there. They have a like a rep team that they do at the end of the season. They pick like ten or the you know the best team from the local comps, and they play against the best team from the Sutherland comp or something like that. And I played in that game with a few guys I grew up with, like Fred Briggs, who ended up playing with the Dogs and stuff like that, and a few of the other boys that were kind of fringing on playing representative. And I had a coach called Arthur Katinas who was awesome and one of the best coaches I've, I've had to this day. He was the coach of the rep side, had a really good game that night. Anyway, time went on. He ended up getting a gig at South the next year as, as a reserve grade coach. 
And um, I was training a fair bit. One day I was running past Matraville Oval, which is where South were training at the time. And I stopped to, to watch. Craig Coleman was the coach and I kind of knew him from the area. And he waved me over and just said, you know, what are you doing? And I was like, look, I'm just training to, to get back to footy. And he'd seen me play and he goes, look, would you be interested in, in coming in and um, playing a, f- a bit of footy? And I was like, yeah, definitely. Went into the club, did some tests with the doctors and they were like, look, you know, we're really keen. We want you to play kind of towards the end of the season. We said, let's look at pick it up next year. And luckily enough, Artie was already there coaching the reserve grade. He put in a good word for me and I, I did a preseason with them. Hmm. And how did you find that? You know, it must have been a relief too to be signed again to play in NRL and you're back in amongst, you know, a whole lot of mates and, and playing in a team event. Yeah, I think, like, to be honest, I think I, I kind of always had this thing in the back of my head that I was, because I'd been sick, that I'd never be as good as everybody, if that makes sense. Not as good, but, you know, my fitness, I think that my fitness always really struggled. What I realise, like, now is that all these um, all these toxins that my kidneys weren't getting rid of were was affecting my recovery. There's a thing called creatinine, which is a, uh, which is a byproduct of muscle wastage that was staying in my system that meant that, if I had a hard training session and back in those days, there was no sports science. You just got flogged. And if you, if you couldn't respond, it was because you were not tough enough or not strong enough. But now I realize that my body just wasn't recovering well enough after the game. So if we had a, if we had a, um, a hard training session on Thursday and we played on a Saturday, I would struggle in the game. I would, you know, be blowing, wouldn't be able to play, you know, 15 minutes without having to come off the field. If we didn't, I'd go 60 70 minutes and be fine. So that must have been frustrating back then because you, if you didn't know what the reason was um, and then you, you were trying to play and you were puffing, you'd, you'd been training and or in the back of your mind, did you think, oh, look, I think it's got something to do with my kidneys? Look, I don't know. I think I was also quite young too and I, I feel like that I kind of w- went through a really stressful period at a young age and I probably didn't grow up as much. I was spending a lot of time with doctors, a lot of time with my mum and probably being babied a little bit too at that point. So yeah, I, I don't think that I, I thought about that much. All, all I knew is that, you know, I kind of got a bad rap for being a, a, a bad trainer, but I actually love, I love training, which was kind of strange, right? I love being in the gym. I own a gym now. Um, I love being in the gym. I love training with the boys, but just couldn't just couldn't keep up. You know, up until later on in my career, when I went up, up up to the Gold Coast, I kind of understood it a bit more and did things to kind of help. But yeah, at, at when I first signed with South, I, I was kind of just going going as hard as I could and realizing that, you know, that potentially there's something wrong, but I didn't have any control over it. And then when you made your uh, first grade debut, what was that like? Yeah, well, that was awesome, right? Like the the bad thing is I had something called compartment syndrome. So I don't know if many people know what that is, but basically I got a, a, a something around your muscles called fascia and the fascia around my calf was restricting like the, the blood supply to the calf. So I would be playing games of footy and it would feel like I was running on my shins. Like I, I just had no feeling in my feet. They were numb. So again, it was one of those things where the club kind of knew about it. They didn't know the extent of it and I wasn't really... You know, I'm going to make my first area to boo. I'm not going to say, hey, guys, yeah, my, I can't feel my feet. And I was like, fuck, yeah, let's go, you know. So we had a – my the boo was down in Canberra. It was something like minus six degrees. My feet, I couldn't feel my feet. I remember making a break and running down the sideline. Who was it? 
we end up running score, but I think I got tackled, played the ball, and we scored. And Fletch, uh, Brian Fletcher comes up and goes, mate, what are you fucking doing? Why don't you just run? And I was like, fuck, mate, I, I can't feel my fucking feet. <laughs> I literally couldn't feel my feet. And in that, the next, uh, in the preseason, I ended up having surgery to fix that, which um, made a massive difference. And then the following year, you um, you played with South again, but then you, you ended up not moving on from South. Yeah, so I, I think I played uh, a game up in Brizzy. I think we flew up the night again. Not sure. It was one of those games where I just was buggered. I think I made a few tackles, probably about five or six tackles in in two sets, and was just blowing. The game was a wasn't it was a close game at, the, at that point in time, but I didn't didn't get on the field. But to be honest, like in hindsight now, I probably wouldn't have given myself much time if I, that was how I, if I was a coach, I wouldn't have given myself much time. So after that, thinking about what South would be thinking is, we've given him two shots. He Canberra wasn't a, a great success. We got beaten 62-24 or something like that. So that wasn't really anything to write home about. And then you know the other game, they were probably like, look, you know we can see where this is going. So I had a few a few other options. I think at the time I had St. George, Melbourne and Gold Coast. And I had a, a great manager at the time. His name's Steve Gillies. The only thing about the Gold Coast is that they weren't coming into the comp until 2007. And I think my last game at South was 2005. So the Gold Coast was either signed with a local team, you'll be contracted, they'll get you a job, give you somewhere to live, um, all that kind of stuff. And I, I did that. I ended up playing, moving up there and playing for Tweed Heads. I think the big thing for me was wanting to get away from um, just all the kind of influences that were around Maroubra at the time. Yeah. yeah. I know a lot of the boys there, mate. It's uh, always get, uh, get themselves in trouble somehow. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it was more the party, not the trouble. It was more the partying. Yeah, I think yeah, that yeah. was the, the aspect of it for me. Yeah, that's right. Mate, a few of them worked. Uh, they've worked for us over the years down there. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. We've uh, Ev and Jesse. Ev, Jesse, yeah, great blokes. Did you didn't end up playing for the Gold Coast Titans, though? Did you even though you were signed from? Yeah, no, I didn't play a game. So we had um, first year I was there. I, <laughs> injuries was probably the name of my career. The first year I was there, I um, in the preseason, I think I tore my um, my cartilage in my hip and tr- tried to train through it through the preseason. Again, I struggle with a preseason. I, I, you know, really struggle. And they trained real hard up on the Goldie, like real hard, harder than we did ever did at South. Like flog, flogging, super fit, but we just got hammered. I played a couple of games at the start of the season and then had a surgery, had the cartilage removed from my hip, which was a success. Um, came back late in the season. And again, I need a, a full preseason. And what I've realized in time is I need a full preseason to be able to be fit enough to be able to, to play. Didn't have a full preseason. Got on the field a couple of games at playing um, the Queensland Cup, which is like the premier competition there. Really struggled again. Like had a couple of games where just got on the field, was blown after five minutes, got pulled. Was given a couple of opportunities to play Queensland Cup and then um, just just didn't work out for me at that time. So I ended up playing... Uh, Fox Cup, which is the reserve grade, had a better a better time with that. Was I had a coach called um, Troy McCarthy, who's Bob McCarthy's one of Bob McCarthy's sons, and he was he was awesome for me. I think um, didn't put too much pressure on me, allowed me to be on the field when I was on the field, would pull me off when I when I wanted to like when I needed to come off, and was kind of a bit more lenient with me. I don't know whether he knew about my disease or you know for what, but I I just thrived in that. In playing playing under him, we made the grand final. We lost the grand final to a team called Burley Bears, and then the next season I was with um with the Titans full time. 
And it must have been frustrating, though, because you knew you had this disease, but obviously a lot of people didn't know that. So they just thought you were, like you said before, a lazy trainer and yeah. you know, not fit. And I mean, how did you deal with that? I didn't. I just copped it. You know, there wasn't, you know, there wasn't really much I could say. You know, I didn't ever want to, like one of the big things, I never wanted to use the, the disease as an, as an excuse. That's probably why I didn't tell people and didn't talk about it a lot. Yeah, so it was tough, but also it was on me. Like, you know, the, I'm the only one that could have could have changed it. And like, to be honest, like I'm saying that I had this disease and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I also drank probably more than I should. You know, I, I, I did train. I did look after myself, but also worked at night, worked late nights, and then would get up and go to training. So there was all these things at the time that, you know, factors that are probably added to me not being able to to play that well in my first couple of years, my first year there. The second year was completely different though at, at Tweed. Had a full pre-season at, at the Titans. We had a, a coach called, uh, tr- a trainer called Billy Johnson, which uh, if anyone in the f- footy industries uh, that's ever uh, trained under Billy, it was torture. Like if you're in the injured squad, you were riding 50K on a bike every morning and then swimming like 5K in the afternoon. Like, People would like go to training injured, so they wouldn't have to do, do be in the injury squad. It was, it was a tough preseason, but probably the best one I've ever had. It was I did the whole preseason, got dropped from first grade at the end of it. I had I think a, a one trial game, and again I played all right, but didn't get much time. I think I got like five or ten minutes on the field, and then got dropped back to Tweed Heads, and that was probably the probably the best thing that happened to me. I went back and was coached under Troy. Troy McCarthy took the the Queensland Cup job. And yeah, like completely chalk and cheese to the first season I was there. I was starting front row or second row for most of the season. We ended up winning the comp, and I think I came runner up in or in player of the player of the, the competition. So that was a great season for me. And did you retire not long after that? No, I um. So I had that season with Tweed, and then you know had a couple of conversations with the Titans, and they were really happy, and they look. You know, I had another couple of offers, I think, from North Queensland. Um, a couple of other Queensland Cup teams had, had offered me money. But I had a, a, a just, a, I guess, a, not a run-in, but I had a conversation with the coach at the time. And he's like, look, I know you're going to get a, another a couple of offers, but um, we really want you here. And so I wanted to be there. Only because I've made good friends. So I had a b- good bunch of mates there. And I, f- I just felt like I, I still had something to prove there. So I turned down the other offers and stayed and then when it came time to renegotiate the contract they said to me that they didn't um that they weren't going to renew it and that i could play queensland cup for tweed heads again uh on a reduced reduced contract after winning the comp and i kind of took that as a bit of a kick in the gut so was offered money to go to burley bears along with another mate of mine at the time and then again i took, took that up and went to burley the next year now, look, looking back over the whole time from 18 when you had you know, your diagnosed with the, with the uh, disease, what there must have been a lot of dark times and tough times in that period from there to now. Yeah, there were. I, but again, like, you know, I think having this disease young uh, uh, taught me about resilience, you know. Being able to kind of come back from them telling me I'd need a transplant in six months kind of gave me a bit of confidence to know that, you know, that not everything that you, you, you're told is always the way that it has to be. I remember Kobe at one point when I first got diagnosed, Kobe Abaddon, we were out, I think I was driving the boys out because I wasn't drinking at that point. 
I think I said something to him like, oh, no, the doctor said that, you know, I'm going to have to have a transplant in six months. And I think he slapped me and just said, shut, shut up, mate. <laughs> Don't ever tell you, let someone tell you what you can or can't do. And I kind of like obviously stuck with me because he slapped me in the face. But um, I kind of used that for the rest of my career. It's like, look, I can control what I can control with my life, I should say. I can control what I can control. And if I can do that and manage to do that, then whatever is going to happen will happen. At least I've done the most that I can do to make sure that it doesn't. Because I find a lot of the young and a lot of young ones that listen to this podcast, they are influenced by a lot of people, especially social media these days and the influence there. So it's great to hear that and what you're saying is you, you've got your own life, your own destiny. Other things will happen to you, but you've got to push through that and be resilient. Yeah, I think you've just got to figure out who, who you are and what works best for you. I've been lucky enough to, to be employed by a lot of different, um, I'm in the health and fitness industry, obviously, I was employed by a company called Vision Personal Training for seven or eight years. And you know, one of the things they did and were big on was personal development. So I did a lot of reading, fascinated by psychology, neuroscience and how the brain works. So I think for me, just remaining positive and controlling what I can control has always just been something that I've kind of tried to, the way I've tried to live my life. Yeah, glass is always three quarters full. <laughs> Mate, now, recently you did get a, um, you received a phone call from St. Vincent's Hospital. So tell us uh, what that was like. Yeah, so I'll probably start with, um, if you don't mind, with just the, that, the whole dialysis process uh, it leading into that. So I mentioned before that my sister was um, a perfect match, right? So I kind of always knew that, I didn't really have to do dialysis for long and we were hoping I never would have to do it. But I did have to do it for three months and I was due for a kidney transplant in May May the 7th, I think it was, in last in 2022 with my sister's kidney. We got a phone call or my sister got a phone call a week before the transplant saying that they'd made a mistake and that her kidney, they found, well, in the initial scans they did, they found a, um, an artery in my sister's kidney that was unsuitable for transplant. It was at the back of the kidney, so it was hard to see, but they found it in one of the initial scans. And because of COVID, that they missed missed the scan, uh, missed it. And they just had a meeting the week before, which is a standard meeting, and it was picked up by my my specialist team. So we have you you have two different teams. You have my sister's team, the her transplant team, and my team. Um, and they keep them separate. So my team found it. And so she got a call, and she texted me and just said, "Look, if you get a phone call." answer it and I was like oh okay cool I was actually sitting right where I'm sitting right now got a phone call from my um vascular surgeon and he's like look mate like I you know there's no nice way to say this but he then told me and that was like you know mentioning the dark times that was probably the darkest time like I'd um you know lost a lot of faith in the medical system at that point for a couple of other different reasons but I was really like kind of really hit me really really hard I was always saying to people that like I wouldn't think that it was going to go ahead until like I'm lying in the bed and the surgery is actually uh, they're putting me to sleep. But you know, a week before it, I'd prepared myself to, to go. So that was May last year, and then obviously what they do then is they try to get rid of this permacath is high risk of infection. So what they did is they took me in for surgery. I got a fistula put in, which is like you can see on here, but it's basically they attire artery to a vein and then it's meant to mature over three months uh, and then they can start using that for the needles which then gives you freedom to swim surf play basketball whatever you want to do so i did that for 18 around 18 months had 
um, because I'm so big, they want, they basically most people do three days a week, four hour sittings. I was doing five days a week, or three days a week, five hour sittings, which is the maximum I could get in a, in a clinic. And I wasn't getting enough clear. It wasn't clearing enough of my blood. So I was still really quite, quite suffering from the effects of the disease. So I did that for 18 months. And then I had a hospital visit. I was, uh, at home in the middle of the night and woke up in the middle of the night and wasn't feeling well, went to the toilet and was like, fuck, I feel dizzy. Passed, uh, I thought, fuck, my wife was out and I was like, get to the phone. So my kids were asleep, a seven-year-old and a four-year-old and I was like panicking that I was going to pass out and they were um, going to be home alone. So I, I thought, get to my phone and I remember like crawling, staying on the ground. The next thing I remember, I woke up at the front door, face down in just a pool of sweat. And I was like, fuck. So grabbed the phone, called the ambulance, text my wife, text my sister. And they both came home within about 20 minutes. Ambulance took about 50, oh, well, 50 minutes later, the ambulance wasn't there. So I, um, sister took me up to the hospital, was in emergency for about 18 hours. They admitted me. I did, did a dialysis treatment and they were like, look, you know, we don't know what it was. We don't think it was your heart or anything like that. Um, so you're going to be fine. Went home. Week later, Thursday, it was a week to the day, I was cooking marshmallows in the backyard with the girls at 6 p.m. and got a phone call. I thought it was a uh, telemarketer. Um, so uh, luckily, I always answer them in case it's the hospital. It was some lady, I've got a lady, a doctor now. She just started asking me these questions and I thought it was about the... Um, she goes, have you been sick recently? I was like, yeah, yeah. And I went through about what happened last week. She's like, oh, oh, okay. I'm going to have to speak to Dr. Zavastos, who's the, the um, Professor Zavastos, who's the transplant surgeon. And I'll give you a call back. And I was like, okay, can I ask what this is about? And she was like, oh, look, we think we've got a kidney for you. And I was like, fuck, I shouldn't have said that stuff about being sick. <laughs> uh, jumped on the phone, called my wife. Uh, I was like, fuck lady said she was going to call me back. So she, the doctor called me back. She said, look, how quickly can you be here? I was like, I can be there in half an hour. So my wife was, I uh, went, got the kids in the car, picked up my wife at the light rail, shot up to the doctors, shot up to St. Vincent's. My wife was driving and driving like 30 kilometers an hour. I'm like, fuck, hurry up. So she starts driving 80 cars. I said, no, like don't speed. Just like if there's cars going past you, like get in front of them. So we had a laugh about that got up to the hospital. They did some tests and it was all like no issues with my chest. Blood tests were all good. I did a dialysis session, a four-hour dialysis session. And then the next morning at six o'clock, they came in and took me away to uh, surgery. And 8 a.m. that morning, I was under the knife. Crazy, mate. Crazy. Yeah, it was mate, absolutely crazy. Like, yeah, I can't explain that that whole, like, yeah, still, still surreal. And, mate, how did you feel once you came out of that? Mate, the next day, like I don't even know if it was the next day. I think it might have even been that when I woke up from surgery, I kind of like there was a fog lifted from me. Like food, I could smell better. I could see better. Food tasted normal. And just like I felt a million dollars. Like it was, I, I keep saying to people, I didn't realize how sick I was and for how long I must have been sick for. But just, you know, I, I kind of joked that I was going to go back and play footy. I just felt amazing straight away and, and every day it's been better and better and better well it must have been an eye opener because then yeah you would have thought back prior to that you know your smell and your taste and all that was normal but it was yeah. only until after that you realized geez i've been suffering all these years yeah well that that was that was it and i don't like i, I try to think back now whether 
like has it been longer than these three years where I've felt horrible for? But it's probably been a slow, slow degeneration, right? And that's probably why I haven't noticed it as much. But yeah, like now, like I used to instead of run a gym, I used to go to work at wake up at four a.m go to work from 5.30, a, start work at 5, finish at 1.30, come home to do dialysis from 2 to 7. That was that was my day. And I was I couldn't play in the backyard with the kids. I couldn't think. That was one of the main things. The, uh, one of the, um, the, the waste products of kidney disease is called urea. And it can affect your short-term memory, your ability to think, things like that. And like I wouldn't be able to have this conversation with you a month ago or two months ago. I'd be forgetting what I was talking about, would ask you to re-ask the question. I just, yeah, my ability to think uh, um, rationally has just improved out of sight. And then moving forward, what's the, the outcome? Obviously, they think that you'll con- you'll continually get better and better. Yeah, up to three months, I think. They, they think that you start kind of, you hit your, your peak at about three months. Yeah, and as I said, like normally I had a deceased kidney, which means the person's obviously passed away which generally takes a bit longer because they have to freeze the kidney to be able to transport it, not freeze it, but put it on ice to be able to transport it. And then um, it's kind of in, in, like you, they put it in. And then normally it takes about two weeks for you start passing urine and all your like, the levels to start dropping. Mine might started producing urine straight away, which was awesome. And then my, creatinine which is one of the biggest measures that they they take or the important measures i think before dialysis it was something like the normal range is between like 100 and zero maybe or 150 and zero i started post dialysis at 690 690 and the day after my creatinine dropped to about 390 and now it's sitting at about 150 so back into the kind of normal range well, that's good, isn't it? Uh, now, what about when you mentioned they picked up that your sister, there's something not 100% right? Yeah. If they never picked that up and put that in, it yeah. could have been a total different story, couldn't it? So what would have happened and is they would have gone through, done the surgery, and once I was on the operating table, open, and she was open, they would have had to have stopped the surgery. Right. So, yeah, it was a blessing in disguise. And since then, my sister's had lots of different um, – health complications as well so i think like you know everything happens for a reason right and i think that that was probably you know in hindsight now the best thing that could have ever happened to to both of us well mate um that's great you're on the on the men and recovering and and, and everything now you're mentioning your um your training and how much you're into it you're, you're owning a gym now so tell us a bit about that it's, is it training collective is what it's called yeah it's called training collective in uh in Potts point yeah so I, I was working for a company called Reunion Training for about two years. Who were, it was a great company. Um, obviously, I had the health issues while I was there and they were fantastic with it. You know, lots of time off, you know, happy for me to, to not be in the gym all day and all night as long as the gym was growing, which it was. But then they, uh, through COVID, they went into liquidation. After COVID, they went into liquidation. They had a lot of, um, you know, paying a lot of staff, which, you know, I think was a testament to the kind of company they are. They paid everyone through COVID completely, but then in the end, it took too much of a toll and they had to shut down. So I got a phone call from the landlord who was running it, like who they were renting off. And he just said, look, you know, if you're, um, if you're interested, let's keep the business open if we can get some of the, the members back. And so myself and my other, so I've got three business partners, another partner called Michelle, 
we just jumped on the phone, called up all the all the members. A lot of them left and went to um, neighbouring gyms. A small core kind of stayed. I think about 56 members stayed. And then, yeah, we kind of built that up to about 140 now. I mean, a year, so we've been open for a year next week. That's great, mate. Now, how yeah. do people get in contact if they want to join up or whereabouts is it again? It's on McClay Street in Potts Point. Best way to, to do it was just a website, which is I can share it with you after, but trainingcollective.com.au. You can jump in and book a free trial or, you know, grab my number and give me a call. I've got not much. I can't work for the next three months or next eight weeks. So I'm just in the back. Oh, I can't be in the gym for the next eight weeks, I should say. So I'm just in the back now just doing all the admin. <laughs> that must be driving you mad, mate. I actually don't mind the admin. It drives me mad not being able to be in the gym. I love being around people and I love training and seeing people progress. So that's that's probably the hard part. But yeah, like I don't mind my admin. So mate, that's uh, the future. You'll continue doing the gym and uh, that, that's yeah. your passion now? Yeah, I think. I just like seeing people grow, like, you know, grow and develop in, in any kind of aspect. I think, you know, I love asking people questions. I, I learn from having conversations with people. So, yeah, I think in that aspect, if it's not a gym, it's, you know, thought about psychology because I just love the brain and how people think and stuff like that. But um, at the moment, I think that the gym allows me to, to kind of get the physical part that I like to see, but also challenge people um, mentally as well, which is what I love. Well, mate, if you ever want to go into psychology, there's plenty of um, guys in the lifeguards that you'd be able to work on, I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've plenty of my mates as well, don't worry. <laughs> you'd have a full-time career there. <laughs> <laughs> well, mate, it's, it's great having you in uh, the Beach Shack having a chat now. And I wish you all the best, mate, uh, in the future. I think you're on the road for recovery and, and it's fantastic. Thanks, mate. Appreciate it. Now, at the end of the interview, I do a segment five fun facts. I'm going to throw some questions at you and yep. uh, answer them however you want, mate. Okay, what are the best and worst purchases you have ever made? Oh, the worst? I'll probably start with that. The worst purchase I've ever made was this thing called a, when uh, the massage guns came out, called a craft gun. <laughs> Paid the money and then the company went into fucking liquidation. <laughs> Never got it. So that's probably the worst purchase. The best purchase? Ooh, probably my engagement ring for my wife. Yeah, I think that's probably the best the best purchase, definitely. Mate, cats or dogs and why? Dogs, just the energy, friendliness, like wanting to get out and go. I think, you know, I've been so low energy for so long that I've got all this energy now and I think a, a dog definitely would, would be able to help me manage that. <laughs> Mate, what are you most proud of? My family. We're all so resilient. I think my young girls as well have been through, you know, a really tough time that most little kids probably shouldn't have to deal with you know seeing dad hooked up to a machine taking his blood out hospital visits in the middle of the night you know seeing dad you know not be able to play or not be able to have people around the house and stuff like that so i'd say my family and the resilience what's the most interesting thing you've read or seen this week i knew i was coming on the podcast so i actually did a bit of one of the things i really wanted to um to push was uh organ donation so actually just reading some t- statistics about organ donation and just the fact that only 50% of people that um, are on uh, registered organ do- donors, only 50% of those people actually end up going through with it. And the main reason is because of um, their families. So when someone passes, you have to be in a, to be a donor, you have to be in a, um, you have to be pass away in hospital. 
And from there, the family gets, even if you've registered organ donor, the family gets the last, the last say. So I think it's interesting to see that it just dropped down to only 54%. And I just wanted to kind of, um, it was interesting that I found that out. But one of the real things I want to push is just the, how important, you know, obviously there's a lot of bias from me, but how important organ donation is and the effects, like the, the life-changing effects of organ donation is, can have on families and people like, like myself. Um, so one of the big things, I guess, is wanting to raise awareness for organ donation. You know, if you are a donor, make sure that you speak to your family and let them know that that's what you want. Countries like Spain, it's, uh, it's mandatory. So if you pass away that you're, and someone needs an organ, you know, I don't think it should be mandatory, but I think that there's a lot of people kind of suffering with these chronic diseases, 14,000 people on dialysis a year in Australia that need kidneys, 1,800 1800 people on the waiting list for an organ, uh, and only, I think, 1,200 people receive organs per year. So that's kind of the, the something that I found interesting. Yeah, mate, great message. And it's something that, um, yeah, we all need to be aware of because you never know when, you know, anyone out there is going to need it. Yeah, and the next thing I guess is also to everyone, you know, I've had a uh, uh, been speaking to a lot of people that have, you know, just been diagnosed with kidney disease or family members. And I think um, an important one is that you don't know that you've got kidney disease until your kidneys are failing. So um, it's a simple blood test. Next time you're at your doctor's, ask for the test because doctors won't do it. Not that they, you know, obviously there's no need to, to test for it, but if you ask for it, at least you get peace of mind that, everything's fine down there because as i said you won't know until they fail mate last question what song do you have to sing along with when you hear it (laughs) (laughs) you don't have to sing it (laughs) thank god so there's probably there's probably two two songs i'd say (laughs) one is um super bass by Nicki Minaj, one for me and my wife and then the other one is clap your hands by sia that's another one that me and my wife always like sing along to in the car Well, mate, great answers. And uh, another one there is, I suppose, you must have had a lot of support from your wife and family and also friends as well. Yeah, like amazing support. Like friends, family, mum, sister, wife, my wife's family, the whole Maroubra community. Like it was crazy the, the day that I posted a, something on my social media about, you know, it's just like the crazy 24 hours. Um, and it was, I think I was drugged up on fentanyl when I did the video <laughs> but um I just got a lot of you know you know we're so happy for you messages and you know like I guess kidney disease is, is really quite lonely you spend a lot of time by yourself on dialysis and it was just really nice to to, to you know to know that people were thinking about me and the family friends and family post-surgery got our house cleaned for us got us a, a food for a couple of weeks like yeah like I can't say enough for all my friends, all my family and Maruba community and also my gym community. You know, everyone's been so kind to us all um, and hoping to re- be able to re- repay the favour. Well, mate, well done. And uh, thanks for coming in the Beach Shack, mate, having a chat, telling your story. And I'm sure it's going to um, resonate with a lot of people. And, and that message to get out and be an organ donor, I think, is magnificent, mate, to push that. Thanks, mate. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Let me tell my story too. Appreciate it. Now let's go to Beach Banner. Yeah, this week in the Beach Shack, we've got Billy Moore. He's uh, back up in Queensland these days, but he did many years down at Bondi, Tamarama and Bronny. So welcome, Billy. Hey, Bob, how are you, mate? Good, mate. Now, 
we've done so many massive rescues over the years. Yeah, tell me one that stood out for you. Oh, mate, there's been there's been plenty down there. Obviously, with the uh, the dynamics of the uh, the crowd you get down there. So, but I guess I guess one of the big ones that stands out is we had one we had one of those days down there. And you know, you get those big Southern Ocean swells that they're rocking in, and we had a day where it was the conditions were actually pretty good, but the swell was swell was enormous. The wind had swung around and gone a bit offshore, and there was a couple of guys jumped in at Mackenzie's Bay, just that the little bay between uh, Tamar and Bondi. And they sort of, they got washed out on the headlands. And I had, I was working with Pete Calhoun at the time. And Pete, Pete ran around with a rescue tube and was going to jump off, jump off the end of uh, the bay there at Mackenzie's and swim in. And I thought, oh, I'll see if I can get out on a paddleboard. So I was down there and we gave, we, we got down onto the water's edge down there and I jumped off, I jumped off sort of like where the reef is at Tamar there. And some somehow I got out. I, I don't really know how I got out, but but I got out and I and I got these two guys and we're uh, I got them on. We're right into right in the bay there at Mackenzie's Bay and I had this bloke on the paddle. These two blokes on the paddleboard and we we're paddling out. And as you know, that that big left hander that breaks out there breaks in off those rocks and it refracts off the rocks there when it gets big and sort of kind of works a bit like that wedge at the wedge at Newport hits there, bounces back and then it just wedges right up in the middle of the bay there. And we, we were right, right on that spot. And this wave just came through. I thought, Oh, we're history here, but it sort of bounced us as it, as it hit, as it hit the rock wall there, it came back and I flipped the board and I had both of them on the inside of my board on, with me on the board and we had those those old boards at the time with the rope handles the big old wide ones with the fin at the back and that's probably that's probably the only reason this we, we ever even pulled this off because it was a big board you know and it somehow punched through the back and we got it got them on there and then we got out the back and we started paddling back towards Tama and I got got off towards Tama there and just the sets were coming in I thought that yeah, there's no way, no way we're going to pull this off coming in on one of the rescue boards with these two blokes. One of them could hardly even swim, you know, and the other one was pretty much crying. He just wanted to get out of the water. So we ended up, we thought, oh, what are we going to do? So I saw Pete, he's on the, he's on the headland here. He's pointing, he's pointing across to, uh, he's pointing across to uh, Bondi. I'm thinking, oh, yeah, well, maybe I'm going to have to go over there. So anyhow, anyway, he called him on the radio over there. And they just got the jet ski. That was the first summer that they'd had the jet ski. But I think it might have even been Kerbox or someone was out on it. He was out using it. And he didn't have, <laughs> they didn't, at that stage, they were, we didn't have, not everyone had radios. Like, well, we didn't have waterproof pouches for them. So you were relying on sort of like more hand signals on the beach. So Kerbox was out, Kerbox was out, uh, out on the jet ski out there. So I ended up, I swam past, oh, like we paddled past, we paddled back in and paddled past. And I look in and there's Kerbox waving to me. He's waving to me, hey mate, how are you? What are you doing? What are you doing? I'm going, come and, come and get him, come and get him. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we got washed, we got washed across and we ended up sort of low towards North Pond. I box came across and grabbed one of them. Yeah. And I don't even think we had a sled on the jet ski back then. I think it was like, no. it was brand new, you know, it was like, yeah, it was back, back in the sort of days when yeah, they were was- just coming in. Yeah. I remember the uh yeah the old two they were a two stroke too I think yeah they the, were the, Yam- the Yamaha two stroke yeah. is what it was yeah yeah because we were down I remember uh, we'd only had it about two or three weeks 
and one of the other lifeguards, oh, I think it was Rob Chokash or someone like that. I mean, he was down there and he's, he's, he said, oh, at the end of the shift, the first day, he said, oh, I made sure I filled the jet ski and everything up for you. <laughs> and they went to start it the next morning. And, of course, it wasn't too straight. <laughs> George was going off his handle. <laughs> but anyway, we end up, we got these two guys in. Yeah. We got these two guys in. And as soon as they hit the beach, mate, they just scarpered. Yeah. They were gone. Yeah, yeah. The usual, the usual sort of like, thank you from a distance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Thanks, yeah. mate. Yeah, don't want us to be seen by anyone. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, yeah. The embarrassment is too much for them. Yeah, but that's all right. That's what happens, I guess, half the time, isn't it? Yeah, mate, it is. It is. As long as they get in safe, it's all good. Mate, that's it, isn't it? Yeah, everyone, everyone comes home safe at the end of the day. That's what it's about, isn't it? Yeah. Well, mate, Billy, thanks, mate. It's uh, great listening to your stories and uh, – Coming to the beach shack, I'll catch you soon. Okay, Bruce. Thanks very much, mate. Appreciate it. Now it's time to have a listen to the fans in the mailbag. This week's letter in the mailbag is from John and he is from Sydney. He said, uh, I love the episode with Tom Williams. He said, I remember listening to Merrick and Rosso on Triple J way back in the day and always loved hearing Tom the Chippy from Manly come on and it was great to have those memories come back when I listened to the episode with Tom. So well done, Hoppo, and congratulations to Tom. Anyway, thanks, uh, John, for your letter and I'll catch everyone again next week. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments, or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.